with the latest on the corporate front, all the market trends, expert opinion, and sound business advice. It is your unique window into the business world, direct from the heart of China. Hello and welcome to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. In today's show, we will talk about China's foreign trade up 7.9% in the first four months of the year, and why is this resilience for China's economy? We will also take a look at population issue in Japan. And now let's begin with our top story. China's foreign trade sees steady growth in the first four months of this year. Foreign trade rose by 7.9% on a yearly basis to 12.5 trillion yuan during the January to April period. Data from the China Customs show that exports surged by 10.3%, while imports rose by 5% in the first four months. ASEAN, or the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, continued to be China's largest trading partner, followed by the European Union and the United States. So, for more on this, join us on the line now, are Dr. Wang Dan, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China, and also Aina Tangen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. So, welcome to our show. Great to be Happy here. Happy to Sunny. be here. So first, Aina, the total foreign trade jumped over 10% on a dollar basis. So how do you explain the resilience of China's foreign trade, given the external geopolitical issues and also plus the resurgence of COVID here at home? Well, I think it's nothing short of spectacular. I mean, if you start reading the foreign version of this, they're pointing towards China's uh, trade was not up as much as it was before. They're trying to say that there's a downward uh, trajectory. I, I look at it differently. I, what I see is uh, China is able to continue to keep post positive numbers, even with uh, the, you know, this, this issue of the geopolitical difference between uh, China and the US, also to a certain extent with Europe, and also uh, facing the headwinds of COVID itself. Mm -hmm. So then how do you look at the latest foreign trade figure? What stand out to you? Uh, well, the foreign trade actually have been faring fairly fa uh, fairly well if you look at export. And there is a quite strong overseas demand from American and European market. And China's export in terms of daily necessities, industrial inputs to ASEAN countries also uh, jumped up by quite a bit. Um, but when it comes to import, the deceleration was quite obvious, uh, mostly due to the weaker domestic demand. And when we look at uh, some of the trend um, in industrial production, it is also quite interesting um, because, as we can see, uh, with prolonged COVID control in China, there are some redistribution of foreign orders to other countries, uh, mostly uh, in uh, Southeast Asia. Um, and for the production of fabrics, uh, toys, um, and uh, uh, luggages, uh, mostly like the lower end supply chain stuff, uh, many of the foreign buyers have shifted some orders to Laos, Vietnam, and India. Uh, their capacity is quite limited, and they still rely on China's supply of raw materials and intermediate goods. So overall, I would still say uh, China's foreign trade is at a quite good position, uh, despite of the disruption from COVID control. And so, Aina, so the exports rose by more than 10% from a year earlier, while imports climbed by 5%. So what does it tell us about the economy? 
Well, I mean, let's look at the numbers uh, and break them down. First off, uh, part of that uh, imports is due to the logistics issues, uh, getting things in and out of China. Um, and it, what it does to me is the other part is is really about uh, glowing global tr uh, slowing global trade. And at this juncture, China seems to be well positioned. I'm going to echo what uh, what Dan Dan said. This is um, a situation where the realities of where things are made are going to continue to affect the trade relations. I mean, no one is going out there and investing and trying to make toys or clothes or shoes or luggage or anything like that. So they're going to continue to come. Now, also look at this on a regional basis. I mean, if you start uh, looking at the numbers that we've seen from uh, ASEAN and things like that and China, it's still everything is still coming out of Asia. And that that is not going to change in the near uh, near future. So I would expect that after uh, COVID uh, is cleared up in China, you're going to see a tremendous amount of, of exports going up as uh, whoever is out there, whatever they need, they're going to have to buy it from either China or someplace else in Asia. Mm. And then both you and Aina are talking about ASEAN countries. So could you tell us more about uh, China's trade with ASEAN countries and what do you see as the main pillars for this uh, economic vitality in this region? Uh, shortly after COVID has started in 2020, uh, ASEAN countries has become China's number one trading partner. And the integration has been uh, deepened after this year's RCEP, uh, that's the original trading partnership, which is initiated by China, has started. And uh, within that uh, trade framework, the tariffs between member countries will be further lowered, uh, centering around China. So when we look at the supply chain resilience in China, it is really becoming the supply chain resilience in this region uh, centering around China. Uh, China would import raw materials from a lot of the ASEAN countries, process them, and then re-export them to, back to those countries to make final awesome. goods. Uh, and many of those places have become important markets for China as well. Uh, uh, Vietnam has become the star of uh, Asian economy, especially in its export. But when we look at what Vietnamese are consuming, you will notice many of their consumer goods are from China, especially the key electronics. Um, Samsung accounts for about one third of its cell phone consumption, but the rest of the cell phone market are all Chinese brands like Xiaomi, Vivo, Oppo. They just dominate uh, much of the consumer market. And a lot of the um, consumer market services model are also following China's lead. Um, so the integration between China and ASEAN countries and also the prosperity in ASEAN countries are quite vital for China's future growth. So, Aina, starting from this year at the beginning, the world's largest uh, free trade deal, or the RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, took effect. And RCEP was reached during the time of the rise of anti-globalization. So, does it make this pact carry more weight in terms of a free trade and the regional integration? Uh, absolutely. I mean, WTO is, is more on the U.S. refuses to allow any of the appointment of appellate judges who could issue final decisions. And as a result, uh, everybody is looking for some other partner. It's kind of like musical chairs. 
And right now, the hottest share out there is definitely RCEP. It's, it's working, it's up, uh, and it represents a very flexible uh, way in which both developed and developing countries uh, can work together. It's quite different from uh, CPTPP, um, and it doesn't mean that there won't be uh, you know, entrance to that, and China is obviously looking at it. But I mean, you're really pointing towards a new kind of uh, economic development engine, and that is uh, really still, as I said, it continues to be Asia. People might say in the U.S. that we don't want to buy goods from China. Okay, then you buy them from Vietnam or you buy them from uh, Malaysia. Uh, it all amounts to the same thing. These are all imported uh, goods, and this is where you know it's, it's hard to understand the logic within the US, if they just don't want to trade with China, that's fine, but it's they don't have any replacement goods. So uh, these types of free trade agreements are probably the future. They represent regionalization and will continue to be uh, the, the largest factor as we go forward in terms of trade. So Dan, we are with this two years pandemic, which is yet to be over. And then you have this war in Ukraine. Many people are worried about whether this is the end of globalization or the supply chain will never be recovered or never be the same again. So are you concerned with that uh, kind of development? Um, even before the pandemic, uh, the global supply chain was already having this regionalization trend. Uh, there were mainly three large blocks. One is in Asia, centering China. Uh, one is in Europe, centering uh, Germany. And the other one is America. Uh, of course, America, uh, the United States, was at a is at the center of that trading block. And now, due to a higher um, concern about national security and uh, the supply chain security, there is a lot of talk about diversifying uh, the strategic industries, uh, especially when it comes to manufacturing. So when you look at uh, iPhone, for example, now, it's not just made in China. There are a lot more now made in Brazil and made in India. So for private companies, uh, the multinational corporations, um, they would try to focus more on the regional economy rather than extend their global network. Uh, I think the trend is in a way inevitable. Mm -hmm. And so, Aina, if you look at the ongoing Ukraine war and also the sanctions, obviously the ASEAN region is less affected, but still, how serious in terms of the effects on the ASEAN uh, member states because of the war, because of the sanction? Well, there's two levels to this. One is the economic side, in which uh, almost all nations around the world are going to suffer. We've already seen the increased uh, prices for food, the increased prices for energy, uh, the shortages of uh, you know uh, all sorts of uh, things that were being supplied by both Ukraine and Russia as that global supply chain is rerouted. Uh, but on a political level, it's really strengthening this kind of regional idea ASEAN is looking to each other to say, look, we have to go our own way. We have to avoid conflict. Uh, and this, I think this has very big psychological effect on how ASEAN is going to respond in the future and how, how much attention they're going to be paid uh, to further developing RCEP as a lifeline. 
Mm -hmm. And then also talking about the inflation issue, it is a global issue now. I wonder if the U.S. Federal Reserve or the ECB raise the interest rates uh, more frequently. So people are worried whether there will be a spillover effect on the developing countries. So are countries in this region also worried about that? Uh, the worry is not as high as in Asia uh, when we compare them to Latin America or the Middle Eastern countries. Uh, the Asian economy uh, is less open in a way comparing to the other continents. And when we look at uh, uh, the interest rate hike in the U.S., it just seems that it probably won't be as aggressive as what market had anticipated before. Um, because the inflation pressure seemed to uh, be uh, seemed to be plateaued uh, in the last month, and uh, for Europe, they have take they have been taking the longest time to decide whether to raise interest rate or not. It's very likely by the end of this year they might do that at least once. Uh, once that happened, that combined with the federal uh, with the Fed hike of interest, uh, that will put a lot of pressure of the capital outflow from emerging markets, uh, including Asia. So the pressure is there, um, but I do think with the supply chain resilience, it won't be nearly as bad as uh, in other regions. Mm, so Aina, do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I still think there's a major disconnect that the, the Fed is missing, which is that no matter how much they raise uh, interest rates or, uh, you know, it's, it's not going to change how much food is available or how much energy is available. Uh, it's not going to change the global supply chain uh, issues that are out there. And um, this failure to make a connection between that is could be fatal because what you're doing is going to dry up a lot of loose money uh, that was out there that has to be refinanced. And when that happens, you're going to have a chain reaction of defaults uh, at the corporate uh, level, and it's going to hit the banks, and then you're going to have a real, 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 real problem uh, going forward. And I, I don't understand why they're not making that connection. And I know, so if you look at the China-ASEAN relationship or the trade relationship in particular, what's the next stage, do you think, for both sides to deepen the cooperation? Well, I mean, as I said, there's both political and economic reasons to do so. I mean, China is, is a lifeline for this trade group, as Dan Dan was saying. It's, it's based around China, but ASEAN is its own entity. And they're able by gathering together to feel that they have an impact on what's going to happen. Uh, that's quite different from the U.S. approach, which is always bilateral. I'm big, you're small, you, you, you do what I want, whether that's Canada or, or Mexico. So I think there's, there's uh, the RCEP was very, very, um, it, everyone agreed to it. They think it's good. It's working. You're going to see that uh, further develop as countries turn to each other as reliable supply chain partners, not only as geographically close, but they're outside this kind of political fray, which is happening in Europe. And uh, they don't want to be pulled into a, a U.S. maneuver where they're uh, some sort mm. of proxy nation in a larger conflict. And so then probably increase the trade relationship and rely on each other even more. They are close geographically and it's more resilient for both sides to become internal supply chain in terms of the trade. So then could you give us some specific examples in this region? 
Well, uh, China's trade relations with ASEAN countries are quite complex and uh, can date back for uh, a few decades. And when China uh, started to uh, started its industrialized uh, industrialization process, uh, its main uh, investors are from uh, a number of ASEAN countries, including Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia. But years later, the relationship has been reversed. China's overseas uh, overseas direct investment in those countries are way higher than uh, the uh, the flow in the other direction. Um, and for supply chain integration, uh, it is uh, even uh, it is even a bigger. Uh, there is even a more promising picture in the future because China has invested heavily into the industrial infrastructure into the ASEAN countries. Uh, the financial connection is deepening. And uh, for uh, Malaysia and Indonesia, they are very important raw material providers for China. And for Vietnam, Singapore, and uh, even Australia, uh, they, they are not in part of ASEAN, but part of RCEP. Um, they're important destinations for, for China's goods and important source of uh, energy goods. So uh, I don't think uh, there, is a, um, there is any obstacles really for further integration in this region. And China's position as the hub of a manufacturing center can only be strengthened in the coming years. Mm. Well done. For other news on the economic front, China has recently unveiled its uh, bioeconomy plan. So could you please tell us what's the main takeaway of it and what's the significance of it, especially at this moment? Um, bioeconomy is at the center of China's plan to upgrade its industrial supply chain. Uh, it's, it requires a lot of uh, the initial fixed investment and requires a lot of talent input. So now Shanghai and Beijing are at the center of this effort. Uh, we have seen massive domestic investment uh, that are supported by the state and also overseas investment into uh, this area. Um, because of COVID, there is an acceleration in R&D investment uh, into the sector. And as we can see for the stock market, uh, despite a lot of volatilities, on this sector's uh, stock prices for the leading companies have been rising. So there's great potential. And I believe if someday China is going to win a Nobel Prize, it, one way or another, it's going to be related in uh, with the bio industry. Mm. Well, we're speaking with Wang Dan, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China, and also Aina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. And after a short break, we'll take a look at population issue in Japan. Stay with us. Hello, this is Michael Zhang. Greetings from Los Angeles of the Golden State of California. Thank you today for making me part of your team. I truly enjoyed the debates we had and look forward to many more in the years to come. You are listening to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. A recent tweet from Elon Musk has put the spotlight on Japan's declining population after the Tesla CEO said the nation will quote unquote cease to exist if the decline birth rate continue. 
Elon Musk commented on a report that Japan's population had its largest drop on record, falling by 640,000 last year. So first then, what's your reaction or response to this tweeting of Elon Musk? Uh, I thought it was so bizarre because now, you know, Elon Musk is the owner of Twitter. Uh, he shouldn't be making some random comments like this. Uh, if I were him, I probably would want to delete on my Twitter account just to be unbiased. Uh, what he said makes some sense, um, but it's still, I think it should be like dialogues between friends rather than uh, coming from him. Japan's population decline is nothing new, but then what do you think are the social, economic, and even cultural causes of it? Um, Japan has a long legacy of objecting uh, immigrants. And for Japanese population, the aging problem has been there for years. And the younger generation uh, don't really have the desire to have a large family. And the social pressure is also quite high uh, when it comes to um, getting a good job uh, and securing the, uh, the livelihood for the entire family. There's a lot of pressure for Japanese guys. And the social structure isn't particularly favorable for a woman wanting to get married earlier and taking care of the kids because it's pretty entrenched uh, social norm that the women should stay home and take care of the kids once uh, once they're married. Um, and I just don't think there is a good way to reverse uh, the population decline unless Japan drastically change its immigration policies. Hmm. So, uh, Aina, so do you agree with that? And what do you think are some of the main reasons for the Japan's, you know, population issue? Well, I mean, uh, throughout developed countries, you tend to see uh, smaller families and things like this. But uh, Japan is really an outlier in terms of how quickly they've gone down. I, I put a lot of it, uh, and I echo what uh, Dan Dan said, uh, on this issue of loss of hope. Um, you know, you go back to the Plaza Accords where the U.S. in essence forced uh, Japan to slow its economy down in a containment move. And since that period of time, you've seen a steady decline. Why? Well, I'm not going to have children if I don't think there's a bright future for them. And right now, it's hard enough just to live in Japan, let alone contemplate uh, the, the cost of having children and then what kind of future uh, they would have. So. At this, at this juncture, I, I don't. But in terms of the overall effects, I don't think they're as severe as people say. I do believe that technology is going to have a, a market effect on this. Uh, Japan's wage structure is such that they have to rely on robotics uh, and uh, more mechanizations. If you, get, if you get people away from having to drive cars and trucks, you can free them up for other uh, areas. Um, they're obviously in their agricultural industry, although it's very entrenched. There's a lot of labor that could be freed up in that regard. I, I do believe that countries that have stable, populate, uh, stable populations in terms of, uh, you know, what we talk about, this, the population tree, which should be fairly smooth, um, if they can maintain that, it's very, uh, very good. Even if it's smaller, uh, the, you know, the world's population doubled in the last 50 years. That has put a lot of stress on uh, world resources. So I don't think it's as dire as people say. It's just a question of uh, getting hope back into Japan and then also uh, smoothing out these kind of fluctuations in, in the population.
Well, moving on to the next story, sales of new energy vehicles or NEVs in China surged in April despite the COVID-19 resurgences. Data from the China Passenger Car Association shows that the retail sales of NEVs expanded by 78% year-on-year to 280,000 units. Then, so for local EV makers, how do you assess the Chinese local EV makers uh, represented by Xiaopeng, Li Auto, and Neo? How do you compare them with Tesla? Tesla's position in the EV industry is quite secure. None of the other uh, EV makers, including the Chinese ones, can really challenge its status quo. Um, but what Tesla does is that it will explore a new model or uh, the organization of production and uh, sort out the supply chain in order to make the EV production more efficient. Uh, Chinese brands are following the Tesla's model quite closely, and they invest quite heavily in R&D in recent years, uh, especially in driverless uh, technologies. Mm. And so, Aina, for Chinese new energy vehicle industries to go global, what challenges will they face and uh, what should they do to explore the overseas market and what are their competitiveness? Well, a lot of automobiles come down to sales and service. In fact, your your, um, revenue model, your profit model depends on it. Uh, You make more from selling the parts of a car than you do from the car itself. Uh, In terms of things, I'm going to disagree with uh, Dan Dan a little bit here. Um, I believe Chinese uh, car makers are very well positioned because uh, over the next couple of years, you're going to be seeing a recession and the effects of it. It's going to be fairly large. People are going to want to have electric vehicles because, you know, the gasoline prices will remain a problem. And when that happens, um, I have less money. I, I need something. I'm going to buy something that's a little cheaper. Tesla is not a cheap car. And there are plenty of uh, alternative offerings uh, from Chinese makers. But like I said, if I'm going to buy a car from a Chinese maker, they have to be able to um, service it uh, for me. So that's going to be one of the big impediments. It's not uh, I think they're priced right. It's just a question of getting overseas and setting up uh, their dealer networks and their service networks. And then so some business insiders see the EV revolution as a big opportunity for China to build a strong domestic auto brands that can dominate the home market and then compete globally. So what's your take and what do you think is the outlook for the EV industry, Chinese EV industry in the near future? Um, In the next few years, I still think the traditional engine cars would be the mainstream in the market, despite of rising oil prices. Um, But if we're talking about what's going to happen in a decade or two decades, I believe eventually most of the cars running in the street have to be EVs um, because climate change and uh, the carbon reduction would be the main concern in the next 30 years. Um, China is positioned well in its uh, in terms of its consumer market and uh, the commitment to fight climate change. So there are a lot of opportunities. Uh, at this point, R&D, I believe, would be uh, a primary concern and should be prioritized. Mm-hmm. Well, we're speaking with Aina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute, and also Wang Dan, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening.